BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Great America podcast with Lou Dobbs, always in the fight for truth, justice, and yes, our American way of life. And now here he is, the Peabody award-winning voice of truth, the great Lou Dobbs. Welcome back to the Great America Show. We are, of course, in the midst of incredibly troubled times, whether we're talking about the Omicron variant of the Chinese virus that suddenly is everywhere. And of course, so is Dr. Fauci on every network, and it seems uh, on every station, blaring his alarms and his constant hair of fire demeanor isn't exactly calming the nation. The great news is fewer people have died, more cases are asymptomatic, and symptoms are, for the most part, mild as a result of this new variant. And that's, and I say seems, because it's early days, and we already know when it comes to this China virus pandemic, uh, we have to start out with what seems before we know what is. But President Biden and his advisors seem intent on turning the pandemic again into another national emergency, which means more shutdowns, lockdowns, closures, and of course, more government power over our lives, less freedom, and seemingly more confusion over what this version of the variant of the virus really amounts to. But we have with us today a brilliant doctor possessed of not only great knowledge about what we've gone through in this country over the past two years, but who is uh, possessed of an original mind and thoughtful advocate for public health, uh, good sense, and the freedoms of individual citizens. Uh, with us today, Dr. Peter McCullough, good to have you with us here on The Great America Show. Well, thanks for having me. Doctor, let's start with, uh, first of all, this Omicron variant. The authorities, public health authorities, seem to be intent on making this into a, another delta uh, perhaps squared or cubed. And that seemed to be the initial tone of it all. And then we hear from the South African doctor. Uh, she says, mild symptoms, not to worry, basically. Uh, your take on what we are facing here. You know, our CDC has actually been, I think, very fair about this. We originally heard about the Omicron variant on the border of Botswana, some travelers fully vaccinated had this new highly mutated variant. And it actually had a signature uh, result on the PCR. It's called S-gene dropout. It means the spike protein is sufficiently mutated that the primer, it doesn't cycle on the PCR for the spike protein. But having said that though, our CDC came out with a report in MMWR dated December 10th, 2021, where uh, they were chronicling the first cases in the US, uh, 43 cases. Turned out that 79% were in those fully vaccinated. And the most commonly reported symptoms were cough, fatigue, congestion, or a runny nose. One vaccinated patient was hospitalized just for two days. It was probably just a panic hospitalization and no deaths. And since that time, our uh, CDC, interestingly, has a forecaster. It's called Nowcast. You can go on the website and see what they're forecasting. They are forecasting 
that by the week ending 12-11-2021, and we don't have the data in on that, they're forecasting 12% Omicron uh, proportion in the United States, you know, basically etching into the dominance of Delta. And then by December 18th, again, that date is passed, uh, and the, the, the data will come in in arrears. Uh, there, they're forecasting 74% Omicron. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, th- those are bold predictions. We've never seen the CDC predict such a giant jump in proportion. Uh, with Delta, in fact, it was a little bit behind that we are going to have the dominance of Delta. And the current estimates are on transmissibility index that the Omicron is going to be less transmissible than Delta, not more transmissible, less transmissible. Well, I, let me interrupt you at that point, because that's, the, that's 180 degrees uh, from what was being uh, said uh, by public health authorities uh, a week ago. You know, it's uh, you, the, uh, just so you can uh, get a handle on this, the transmissibility, the very first looks at transmissibility occur from computer modeling. So because the outer portion of the spike protein called the S1 segment, in fact, that tip is called the receptor binding domain, that's what locks into the human ACE2 receptor. All of the um, structure of that is sufficiently known that once the mutations uh, are known in the receptor binding domain, one can actually calculate how transmissible would it be because the virus, if it can't lock into that that portal of entry, it can't inject itself into cells. So with Delta, the transmissibility index was worked out and is ultimately proven in infectivity uh, cell cultures to be over 10 for Delta. It was about two for the original Wuhan wild type. So right now, transmissibility came in from a lab in France uh, the initial from the modeling at around four. So we'll have to see. And, and our CDC directors, I think, did fairly say that, listen, we don't know yet how transmissible is. I've just never seen such bold predictions that literally we would be, you know, if they're correct, that means right now we're at 76% Omicron. And if that is correct, it's very interesting. You know, there's a whole wave of COVID positivity across major sports leagues right now. And we're not hearing of anybody getting sick. There's a whole wave of uh, COVID cases in the U.S. Senate right now, uh, but no one's sick and in the hospital on ventilators. This is a really interesting time. It is an interesting time. And uh, by the way, when I say uh, something is 180 degrees opposite what had been said earlier by public health authorities, I have no dog in this hunt. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a skeptic by nature of government. I don't trust government. I, I think it's a God-given right of every American, and I think a birthright, uh, to be skeptical of government. It, we used to pride ourselves on our ingenuity, our hard work, and yes, our skepticism of authority. Uh, that seems to have uh, been uh, ebbing here in the last few decades. But where I come from is not as a political, you know, a political partisan. I just have a what I consider at least a healthy skepticism of government. And, uh, and taking things at just face value in uh, particularly early days like these. Uh, so we did have a, a sort of a uniform a statement from public health authorities that it was going to be a, a much more highly transmissible than Delta uh, and certainly more so than the Wuhan virus. Uh, and this is great news if indeed it isn't. Uh, I think uh, that that would be a positive. Is it what it seems, uh, is it, or is it counterintuitive? Uh, well, they're, 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 Lou, they're following what's called Mueller's ratchet. And Mueller's ratchet says that when the virus gets to an evolutionary bottleneck, 
that there can be a big jump in mutational status in order for the virus to become more transmissible. And almost always when that happens, it becomes less lethal because the virus has to keep its prey alive in order to go to the next susceptible person. The only thing that we're seeing here, that new variable here in the kind of viral uh, ecology and evolution is vaccination. And, you know, the vaccination is something that the virus, uh, you know, naturally won't anticipate, but obviously is going to respond to. And so we have data that just came in from Denmark and the report is dated December 13th, status of SARS-CoV-2 variant Omicron in uh, Denmark. And, and listen to this, they had of, uh, they're a heavily vaccinated country. So of, they had 67% of their cases of other variants, not Omicron, 67% were in the fully vaccinated. And we see that now in Israel wow. and elsewhere. And it's just because the vaccines don't stop Delta, don't stop uh, Delta particularly, or don't stop the other variants uh, as completely as what uh, we would like. Now with Omicron, they had already reported 3360 cases and 79%, uh, uh, which is in Omicron, 79% of those cases, uh, of, uh, 3360, out of the 4251, they were in the fully vaccinated. The point I'm making is the proportionality of Omicron in the fully vaccinated is even greater. So it's possible that Omicron has quickly learned how to thrive even to a greater extent in the vaccinated. Now that would give it an evolutionary advantage over Delta. Evolutionary advantage. Uh, and, and for we hosts, our potential host, a disadvantage, correct? You know, yes and no, because if 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 a vaccinated person, and we assume maybe many of the senators right now who are sick, let's just say that they're vaccinated. And in fact, they have Omicron and they're having a mild illness. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that they get fully exposed to all the epitopes on the spike protein, the nucleocapsid. You know, the, the virus has 27 proteins. When you get the when you get the respiratory infection, you get immunity against 27 proteins. You're not just dealing with permutations in the spike protein, you have a robust T cell immunity, a T presenter, helper, and natural killer cells. And, and so that permanent memory then would give a much more durable uh, immune status where one you know, goes out in a, in a congregate setting, they're not going to you know, get COVID-19 again because they're protected. So, so what are we to make of uh, Omicron at this particular point? Is it deadlier? Is it more transmissible? Uh, is it is it milder, and will there be fewer deaths or more? What what is your uh, your picture of Omicron, and what can we expect? Well, you know, Laura Ingram had me on I think a couple of weeks ago on this, and it's always hard to make a prediction. Last year, I published a whole series of op eds in the Hill. This year, I started America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, and so far, I haven't missed on major predictions because I've been conservative. Um, but I can tell you right now, reading the data early, it looks like Omicron is uh, carving out its own ecological niche. It's maybe have a greater center on those who are vaccinated. And so far, all the reports indicate that it looks like it's milder, although the first death was reported, I think, in Texas, uh, in vulnerable... Yeah, in vulnerable people, there will be deaths. But remember, the single greatest factor that dictates if something is mild or severe is early treatment. Not, not, the, not the vaccine status or not even the virus. It's always about early treatment. So if people get early treatment, they get prompt early treatment, starting with virucidal uh, washes in the nose and mouth that are highly effective. And then we move on to our monoclonal antibodies. You know, I was on Joe Rogan and he went over the, 
the protocol. I, saw, I told him, Joe, basically, he, he received the McCullough protocol. It's now copyrighted. Someone copyrighted in my name, the original protocol I published, teaching the world how to treat COVID-19. I said, Joe, you, you received exactly how I drew it up for America and the world, and you got through it in three days. And I said, if we just did that in everybody, you know, we could get back to work and just let America be get back on to business here and just treat the sick patients who present before us. The the uh, McCullough treatment uh, works for uh, Joe Rogan, and and thank goodness, uh, we're, you're talking about therapeutics. You're talking about antivirals and a way to proceed. Give us give us the rundown. The rundown now in 2021 starts with breakthrough information about uh, the nose and the mouth. And there was a pivotal study by Chowdhury and colleagues, 606 individuals, randomized 303 to each group. They were coming down with COVID-19 and they were randomized to getting povidone iodine or dilute betadine. Uh, you buy betadine as a brown uh, solution they use in emergency rooms to sterilize wounds. Yeah. Uh, ophthalmologists use it as eye drops, but you just dilute it down. You buy it on Amazon or, or Walmart, uh, dilute it down uh, considerably to a 1% solution, and then basically squirt it up the nose, sniff it back and spit it out the mouth, then gargle with it, or just gargle with scope or Listerine. Do that once or twice a day. That's enormously preventive in terms of killing the virus or killing enough of the viral particles to where they don't start a clinical infection. Wow. And then what Chowdhury did, Lou, Chowdhury actually randomized people coming down with it. It dramatically clears the PCR to negative. Dramatically, I mean, over 75% uh, drops risk alone with no other treatment, reduces the chances of ever ending up in the hospital, needing oxygen or dying. So we start this now. I do this in my seniors routinely. I teach all my patients this. And we still have great backup. After that, we use nutraceuticals and supplements that are modestly helpful, but zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, quercetin. We use an over antihistamine antacid called famotidine. Remember, President Trump received famotidine as part of it's a mild antiviral. We use azithromycin and doxycycline to cover some overlap organisms. And then after that, inhale budesonide. In the STOIC trial, they had over an 85% reduction in hospitalization. It's inhaled a strong steroid. We use oral colchicine, uh, an anti-inflammatory. That was shown in a huge randomized trial, the co-corona trial, over 4,000 prospective double-blind randomized placebo-controlled to reduce hospitalization and death. On day five or pulmonary symptoms, we use uh, oral prednisone like we'd use in asthma or in uh, emphysema. And then we're down to blood thinners after that. Everybody goes on aspirin, 325 milligrams throughout. Japanese do that out to 90 days. I think that's uh, prudent because there are late heart attacks and strokes. And then high-risk patients, honestly, Lou, someone your age, uh, someone in the age of our uh, uh, people who may have uh, some other medical problems that accrue or are less mobile, we use Lovenox. We actually use Lovenox injections preemptively, one milligram per kilogram every uh, 12 hours. And then we uh, can, can use oral anticoagulants. Uh, all the uh, seniors, uh, certainly all the nursing home residents get the full uh, suite. Joe Rogan used the term kitchen sink. I said, Joe, it's really what's called sequence multidrug therapy. It's typically four to six drugs. Short course for somebody over age 50, and that's kind of where we start treatment. People under 50 in general don't need any treatment, right. but over, over 50 with medical problems, five days is short course. Uh, I'm about 60, Lou, so uh, for me, it would be about 10 days. People getting closer to you know, upper 70s or 80s, we go full 30 days. And I have treated patients in their 90s, and I get them through the illness. And let me tell you what, if I get a 90-year-old, and they get COVID-19, and they get no treatment, and they sit in their apartment or in their senior facility, and you let them brew for two weeks or three weeks, I guarantee you they're going to end up in the hospital. Yeah, it, it, the viral load, I think, increases uh, 
greatly in that period of time would have the opportunity. So uh, this is fascinating to me, doctor, because what you're saying is we should start with the therapeutics, uh, not sit there and kind of wait around and uh, see whether or not we go to the hospital, right? Right. What I described is what's called the precautionary principle. So when I laid out the treatment uh, program for the U.S. and for the world last year, um, the, the, the operating principles were the following. That, listen, this is a mass casualty event. Large, randomized, highly definitive clinical trials take two to five years to do. The federal guidelines that depend on large randomized trial will take another two years to come forward. We don't have time. Americans are dying now. Uh, the precautionary principle says it's like it's like uh, like being a trauma doctor. Take action now. We look for drugs that have an acceptable uh, signal of benefit, an acceptable safety, and we put them together in combinations. We knew this was a fatal illness. It's not a single drug uh, program. Uh, you know, I mentioned uh, the oral and nasal washes, then the nutraceuticals. Uh, the next layer after that is the monoclonal antibodies. And I should have you know, mentioned the, uh, Operation Warp Speed delivered some terrific products. We have lilies back on the market with bamilivimab, uh, ertesimab combination. Regeneron's been our workhorse. Former President Trump received right. this. Uh, Rogan, that's uh, indimimab, carisivimab. And now GSK probably is the best product. That's sotirivimab. That's an antibody against a stable uh, epitope on the spike protein. I'm telling you, these monoclonal antibodies are wonderful. I use them every day in my practice. Uh, the, the GSK product hit the New England Journal of Medicine, 85% reductions in hospitalizations and death. And that's just upfront. You know, we give it day one. I tell everybody, we're two years into this. There shouldn't be a single senior citizen where we get a panic call. They should scout out, know where their antibody centers are, know the hours of operation, uh, first come, first serve, or scheduled. I have like two or three people today getting monoclonal antibodies. Lou, they work, they're effective, and they make it so much easier. If we give monoclonal antibodies, I typically skip hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and I go into the anti-inflammatories and antithrombotics. Um, if I don't give monoclonal antibodies, then my fallback is to use hydroxy, supported by over 300 studies. Now, it's a modest benefit, about a 25% treatment effect. Ivermectin, uh, supported by 60 studies, uh, about a 70% treatment effect. Uh, and uh, and then outside the United States, they have favipiravir in Japan and Russia. A lot of Americans don't know that there's actually officially FDA equivalent approved drugs outside the United States. And now we got the Pfizer drug coming on, which is a combination of two protease inhibitors. Uh, one of them is a novel commies like three protease inhibitor, uh, and then a, an older one used in AIDS called ritonavir. It's a combined product. And then the Merck product is molnipiravir, uh, which is similar to the favipiravir used in Japan. But the point is we have a nice layer of antivirals uh, and they uh, are very well tolerated and safe. It looks like all of them would be safe that we would use them as uh, an oral approach if we can't get the monoclonal antibodies going quickly or you know, for some reason are not gonna use them if I had a younger person with severe symptoms, for instance, and or uh, you know, going to be remote from a center, I had a lady today, East Texas. Uh, I talked to her today. She got through COVID. Uh, I said, "Did you ever get the monoclonal antibody?" She goes, "No, I just I was too remote. I I relied on the hydroxychloroquine and the other drugs." Fine. Unfortunately, her her husband ended up in the hospital. That's what the call is about. He's in his seventies, and I tell you, Americans should know. Listen, we have pre-purchased so many of these antibodies. We're oversupplied with them. Uh, everybody should have an action plan. There should be no surprises right now. COVID is if somebody's still susceptible, they need to take action and have their plan in place. When you say if somebody's still susceptible, uh, we're we're hearing a lot of stories about Omicron attacking the vaccinated. Uh, successfully uh, and, and infecting them. Uh, what does that mean 
for immunity of, of the vaccinated. Uh, what should people expect here? We had data with the vaccines. You know, Americans were owed a monthly report from our agencies now that FDA are running the vaccine program, which in many ways is a mistake. The FDA should actually not be running a program. They should be the drug safety watchdog. The CDC shouldn't be running a program because they're really the outbreak investigation unit. Right. We should have had a separate vaccine task force run the U.S. program. And then we should have had an independent data safety monitoring board, someone like, you know, something I do in my academic career, someone like me or a panel of people like me, to actually oversee the program in order to guide on safety and efficacy. But because we had the wrong agencies leading the program, you know, Americans still have not gotten a report. There still hasn't been an official federal report saying, you know, what's the best vaccine? What's the worst vaccine? Where are the safety problems? Uh, we've been flying blind. And so we, uh, what we had to do is rely on what kind of gets out in the peer-reviewed publication literature, which is oftentimes uh, delayed. But it, it started to come in, and let me give you the key citations. They started to come in in uh, September, and the first one looked favorable. It was pr uh, produced by the CDC in their own journal called the MMWR, the first author's self and colleagues. They reported protection against hospitalization. Now, remember, this is not randomized. And people who take the vaccine are much more likely to get monoclonal antibodies and get early treatment, right? Because they're activated. So these numbers are stilted in favor of making the vaccine look good. We also know that the CDC told the vaccinated not to get tests. And they told hospitals, don't test people when they come into the hospital. So there's a testing bias where the unvaccinated get over-tested and the vaccinated get under-tested. So all these biases work to exaggerate uh, vaccine efficacy. Having said that, here are the numbers. Uh, at 128 days, 120 days in the self-publication, uh, Moderna came in at 92% vaccine uh, uh, efficacy against hospitalization. Pfizer came in, same time period, 77%. And then Johnson & Johnson came in at 68%. Now, Moderna, in every analysis, always is the best against protecting against hospitalization and complications because Moderna's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. Pfizer's only 30 micrograms of messenger RNA and Johnson & Johnson are adenoviral particles. But our agencies have not, up until just recently, not really made a distinguishment between the vaccines. And since we have an oversupply of vaccines, if this is you know, an, an urgent problem, which it is, I think our public agencies should be guiding people to the best vaccine. Uh, and we haven't really seen that. Now, the self-paper had no uh, information on Delta. The big paper that came in was the Ivy Network paper, that's a federally supported right. uh, investigational group. First author is 1040. That is in JAMA. And they're about 85% vaccine efficacy and hospitalization with all these biases. But the key table is, is figure three, where they have people in the hospital who clearly have COVID. So this is now clear. This isn't just with COVID. They have got COVID. And the vaccines uh, uh, collectively had a 59% uh, risk reduction in the progression of COVID-19 disease, but the key number is death. Now, of the vaccinated hospitalized, 6.3% died. Of the unvaccinated hospitalized, 8.6% died, and the p-value was statistically insignificant. So it trended in favor of the vaccines for protection and death, uh, but was not statistically significant. And then the final paper to mention is by Cohn and colleagues. This is from the US VA system. This just came in in the last uh, few months, 780,225 veterans, and they organized them 
in terms of age group. They don't know exactly if they died of COVID or what they died of, but they know who's COVID positive and who isn't. So of those who never tested COVID positive ever, they died of other things, the vaccine was actually associated with a benefit. So that means selection bias. Those who, who take the vaccine are more likely to survive overall, just because of you know general selection characteristics. And the, the point spread on that was about a um, about a three percentage absolute difference in those survival curves. Now, of those who died and they had COVID or died with COVID, the, the spread over age 65, Lou, was 12% absolute risk reduction. That, that's pretty substantial. Now, age under 65, the story is very different. There's only a 1% absolute benefit for the vaccine under age 65. Now, in that, finally, for uh, the overall uh, PCR positivity rate and, and developing COVID-19, all the protection fell off a cliff in September. So Moderna went from 90% protection to 59% protection. Pfizer went from 87% to 43%. And Johnson & Johnson went from about 86% down to 15%. All right. And yeah, what happened, and this is a huge sample, what happened in September, Lou, was most of the veterans came to a six-month expiration on their vaccine. The vaccines basically wore off. And then we had the full shading in of the Delta variant, which uh, is, you know, has resistances against the vaccine. So both those things happened. So in September, we knew that our seniors were becoming uncovered. And I think that's what pushed our agencies in the next few months to basically say we need boosters. Yeah. And, and with the differences in efficacy, after you, uh, you know, uh, account for uh, some some bias, some advantage. Uh, which of the vaccines seems now we're two years into this, as you point out. I have the horrible feeling, going back to my skepticism, I have the horrible feeling that we don't have two years worth of uh, better information and knowledge about uh, what we're doing in this pandemic, our public health agencies in particular, uh, and the way in which uh, the science is being disseminated to people who need to understand it. Uh, so after all of that, doctor, which is the best vaccine of the ones that we we mentioned, uh, whether it's uh, Moderna, whether it's Pfizer, whether it's J&J, &J, uh, uh, what is the other one? Uh, there's there's, right, there's AstraZeneca outside the United States. And actually today, Novavax was just approved in the EU. The answer to your question though, I'm looking at the data right now, just one more paper. Nordstrom and colleagues, huge study from Sweden uh, in, published in Lancet, 1.6 million pairs. So it means half vaccinated, half not vaccinated. Uh, solid study. Let me give you the data. Pfizer starts out at 30 days. Pfizer has 92% protection against symptomatic COVID-19. And that protection in six months drops to 23%. Moderna starts out at 96% at 30, uh, at 30 days, and it drops to 69%. I'm telling you, every analysis, Moderna's the winner. Well, that's important, but we don't hear that in the in the popular press. We do not hear that uh, from uh, the CDC. The, there, this is like putting out a placebo in many respects uh, in, in the midst of a of a, of a crisis. Uh, and it's representative. And, and thank you, doctor, for giving me a straight answer, because as you know, those straight answers are very hard to get generally uh, in the uh, in the media and it's desperately needed. Let me ask you this uh, as well. If, are we going to just have to keep getting boosters here or 
Uh, what do you anticipate? First of all, let me back up and talk about we and what that means. We, people 65 and older. We, people 75 and older. We, people uh, in their 80s uh, up. Uh, these are very different groups, especially from the 40s and the 50-year-olds uh, in this country, and then the young people. But we're all getting the same advice, the same counsel, the same direction about vaccination. And we're being told that we're not vaccinated. Uh, you know, and it's poppycock. The most vulnerable populations, we who are older, uh, are getting vaccinated, are we not? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think there's been... Um so much division around this vaccinated or unvaccinated. Yep. And I'll just give you the, the the CDC numbers. I mean, we are a highly vaccinated country. The CDC has a report out August, uh, October 25th, Lou. We've, we've had 220 million Americans receive at least one dose of the vaccine through October 25th. Wow. We are heavily vaccinated. Remember, you, you know, the children comprise about 70 million uh, individuals. Then we had data uh, with the Delta outbreak. My estimates are, you know, and just the best I can as just a, as a, as a guess, as an estimate that we probably have 80% of children have already had COVID-19 now. And, and, and one of the support wow. for that, yeah, listen to this. The reason why, how do we know that is because there's no school outbreaks. All the kids are back at school now for six months, not a single school outbreak. I presented recently at a conference with Scott Atlas. Scott had the data on teachers, elementary school and junior high teachers, safest profession from freedom of COVID-19. The kids are an immunologic buffer because they've already been through it. So the CDC put out an estimate of how many people are actually naturally immune. That means they've already been through the illness and it's basically over with. And that number came in at, uh, and the CDC tends to be conservative on this, at 146 million individuals. So, uh, you, you know, with that, we have uh, over uh, 140 studies showing natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable, uh, meaning uh, that there is no meaningful uh, opportunity for a second serious infection. Now, people test positive intermittently forever. So there is a ton of false positive testing out there. Somebody in my family tested positive 17 times after having COVID forever. And, they, and I, I kept telling my family, I said, listen, they didn't get COVID 17 times. They're fine. It's just you get it once. And we now know that remnants of the virus lose stay in the body for a year and a half after infection. That's been shown by Bruce Patterson. So of course, people are going to intermittently test positive after having the initial infection. We just need to stop the testing once somebody's been through the serious illness. Yeah. And meanwhile, the, the White House is wanting to put out, uh, what, 500 uh, uh, million uh, test kits. Uh, it's, it's crazy. Uh, you know, if it's, you're not, when it comes to Biden, uh, and, and actually all of government, uh, they really don't have much of a sense of what is taxpayer money and what is their money. Uh, they spend hours like they would never spend their own. Uh, I, I just, the testing is, uh, you know, is important, but at this, at this juncture, based on what you're saying, with the number of people in this country in the millions who've been uh, inoculated, uh, who have then add to that, uh, the, those who have natural immunity, we're a country that shouldn't need to be locked down, should we? No, if you look at the Venn diagram of those who've already been through it, the CDC estimate through October 2nd, 2021 is 146.6 million. 
The CDC estimate that 220 million people have taken at least one dose of the vaccine. Uh, And the fact that, you know, our treatment uh, approaches have advanced so greatly. I've taken the view that, you know, we could just go back to normal. And when COVID-19 presents itself, treat it promptly uh, in the outpatient arena. If people get sick, handle them in the hospital and just go back to normal. At some point in time, we're going to have to declare it over and just let the doctors treat treat it out and let's close out the the pandemic let's get back to normal but if we if we go out and do the things that we've been doing is creating more fear so for instance our president uh i want to say about a week before christmas said that we're heading into a dark and deadly winter oh yes for the unvaccinated lou america needs leadership that's positive that is um, joyous around the time of the holidays. And Americans want to hear, especially our seniors, they want to hear a good word that it's okay and that we can uh, you know, get together over the holidays. And if something happens, we can treat them and get them through it. And, and let me just, if I may, uh, recap a, a bit here on, on one thing in particular. Uh, by the way, I was reading the Wall Street Journal the other day, uh, and in it was what happens, what should you do if you contract uh, COVID or Omicron? It is the only article I have seen in the popular press, uh, in all media, in the last, I would say, six months, certainly, about what to do if you get uh, get uh, infected. Uh, I haven't, and it may be, by the way, much longer than that, but I think it was about six months ago, six months to a year ago. We don't see people telling people what to do if you get the disease for crying out loud. Uh, and, and so I want to uh, congratulate the Wall Street Journal for having done so. Uh, but uh, it's almost impossible to get good information on what uh, what is going on. And I want to thank you again, doctor, for, for what you're doing here today. You're giving us reason for joy. I, and the and the best way that can uh, you know the best way to boost anyone is to improve their knowledge and to uh, to give them the facts uh, and, and these facts are are wonderful. But what I hear you saying too is we need to be focused as much on antivirals and thera- therapeutics, certainly or perhaps more so than vaccines. Am I wrong? No, you're exactly right. Remember, the vast majority of people who take the vaccine will never come in contact with COVID. So we just have to focus on the narrow band at any given time that actually have the illness and treat them. Because remember, if someone is untreated, Lou, they go 14 days of being contagious and they spread it around. Family members ultimately come over. Everyone, it just propagates the virus. If we treat early, we reduce the infectivity period to like with Joe Rogan, you know, a good case example, down to three or four days. And so the bottom line is by treating early, we snuff out the pandemic. That's exactly what happened in Mexico City. They shifted to an early treatment program. They snuffed it out. Same thing happened in India, Sri Lanka. Uh, Bangladesh is really focused on the oral nasal hygiene. They, they have 160 million people, crowded conditions. They're almost down to zero COVID. Uh, countries have taken different approaches. Italy, uh, heavily vaccinated country, but they they overlaid it with a treatment domiciliary, which is an oral hydroxychloroquine based approach with multiple drugs. They, they had declarations in cities of zero COVID in some of their major cities. One of the things we haven't seen is we haven't seen teams of doctors in Washington. When I testified in the U.S. Senate, 
last year, I told America, I said, we needed four sets of teams. We needed a team of doctors focusing on reducing spread of the virus. The biggest thing we've learned is decontaminate the nose and the mouth. That's huge. The second thing is we needed a team on early treatment, all the therapeutics, everything we talked about on therapeutics and each team monthly updates to to the country. Uh, Team number three in hospital treatment. We haven't heard anything, any updates in in hospital treatment now for a year. Um, uh, You know, there must be advances. There must be clinical trials. Uh, Let's see it. And then finally, a team focused on vaccination. What we had is we had a preoccupation on two things for two years now, masks and lines and vaccines. And we we have not had a balanced approach and we haven't had any teamwork. American has pretty much seen one or two people on TV, no teams of doctors. Remember, no two doctors agree on anything. So we always need teams. We need consensus. We need independence. We can't have our government officials calling the shots. We never do. By the way, in other medical problems, it's always an independent team of doctors that basically becomes the consensus panel. Always. We never have single government officials running any consensus in medicine. I got to say to you, doctor, you and I are getting along beautifully. I I love it. Independence and and healthy skepticism goes a long way. Uh, Even in science, I love the people who are decided that, you know, if if it's it's emanating from a, a uh, a, a science journal or whatever, it must be gospel and therefore must be, you know, uh, well, Lou, I, I have to respond to that because it was stated that uh, one of our government officials that he himself represented himself as science. And, you know, I, I can tell you as a, I, I can tell you as a, as a senior, as a senior doctor, I mean, I have 650 publications in the peer reviewed uh, literature. That's in the top echelon of anybody in the world. I'm in, I, I focus on heart and kidney disease. I'm in that, t- that area. I'm the most published person in the world in history. I have 52 papers published on COVID-19, including the two seminal papers, you know, teaching the world how to treat COVID-19. I have a right to have an opinion. Uh, but I tell you, I can tell your listeners and you that science is a process. It's a discipline. It can't be represented by a single person. That type of demagoguery, America should 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 immediately be alarmed with uh, and be distrustful of. And uh, I can tell you something else that I've been on the news. One time uh, I was accused of being a skeptic and Laura Ingram brought this up. And I said, Laura, skepticism is the lifeblood of science. Of course, I'm skeptical. Uh, you know, if I wasn't skeptical, I wouldn't be good as a scientist. Exactly. And uh, again, you and I are getting uh, getting along perfectly. Uh, this I, I want everyone uh, in this country to be skeptical, uh, skeptical of their news choices, skeptical of the uh, of what is being presented. Uh, and, and by the way, if there is anyone and I doubt this doctor, but if there is anyone in our uh, audience uh, for the show who doesn't know uh, who Dr. McCullough was referring to when he said a person representing himself as science, that would be the one, the only Dr. Fauci who has uh, become ubiquitous uh, and uh, insatiable in his uh, public appearances uh, and certainly no less arrogant uh, in his opinion of who he is and what he's doing. Uh, a remarkable uh, well, a, a remarkable circumstance. Doctor, as we uh, wrap up here, I think that there's a great public service to be done. Uh, if, if you would uh, uh, share with our, our listeners your website and how they can uh, follow you, I think that's uh, very important if you would uh, share that with them now. 
Sure, thanks. Uh, this year, I was really honored uh, to join the team at America Out Loud Talk Radio. So I, I started a show called The McCullough Report. And every week, it is a report similar to this, where I give critical updates. Uh, one of the things America knows is that I will be true to the citation. So everything I state uh, will have a citation. I always try to localize it by first author and uh, so what, what, these are everything I've said is readily identifable on uh, uh, Internet and, and, and is no opinion. So it, people have made a big deal about information or misinformation. I said it's, it's neither. It's basically just the data. You, you decide. Uh, take a look at it. And so America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, for the key treatment guides, lists of treating doctors, uh, several different key websites. One is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. That group has been around since 1943. They were the first ones to endorse early treatment, aapsonline.org. Uh, one for advocacy on vaccine safety and efficacy and early treatment is the Truth for Health Foundation, truthforhealth.org. And then there are two uh, active national uh, treating services. One's called the American Frontline Doctors, uh, AFLDS, and the other one's called the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, flcc.net. And through them, you can see linkages to all the other national telemedicine services and regional telemedicine services. Uh, more and more clinical doctors are getting on board. It, it was a bit of a learning curve for doctors to pick up the hang of how to do this by the phone and to be quick and get treatment, uh, do risk stratification and get treatment to patients. But it is working. Uh, I can tell you right now, the hospitals are not overloaded. I was in the hospital yesterday. Things are very calm very manageable. Uh, I hope we can get to the point of zero hospitalizations, zero deaths. We're still going to have some COVID. It's just that it's going to be the confluence of all of our strategies working together to get us through the pandemic. Doctor, uh, it's, it's been very instructive. And uh, while my comprehension level, uh, <laughs> it, it, will, it would disappoint you. I, I'm, I'm thrilled that I understood as much as I did of what you uh, uh, you said you were crystal clear, uh, but I love trying to understand all of the medical terms. Uh, and I have to say thank you for not not speaking down to us, uh, straight up stuff. And that's exactly what this audience demands. So uh, we're deeply appreciative. We'll be putting out all of that information uh, as well on our social media uh, and getting it to our audience uh, so that everyone has it. I hope you'll come back soon. Enjoy talking with you. I want to thank you for everything you're doing for enlarging the uh, the body of public knowledge about this uh, disease, this pandemic, uh, its treatment, uh, and, uh, and 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 so much more. Uh, you're a great American, and thank you so much, Dr. Peter McCullough. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, and we will continue in just one moment. Please stay with us for more of the Great America Show. There are days in this halcyon era of the Biden presidency that we're all surely tempted to think one day or the next, reason will surely ultimately prevail. That President Biden will suddenly come to his senses and stop the Marxist madness. But instead, his administration starts a new initiative or an order that is not only divisive but destructive. And never has any American president given greater power to the unelected permanent bureaucracy. The Biden Food and Drug Administration is dropping restrictions against the abortion pill. That's right. You heard me right. Now, the Federal Drug Administration 
will no longer require that a woman visit a hospital, a clinic, or a doctor. Now women can order an abortion pill online. Pro-abortion groups cheered the Biden decision. Pro-life advocates, of course, are simply stunned in disbelief and furious. Joining us is one of the great defenders of life in this country and committed opponent of abortion, and most assuredly opponent of on-demand, online abortion. Senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Pastor Robert Jeffress. Pastor, great to have you with us. I have to say this was a stunning uh, and, and stealthy decision taken by the Biden administration, wasn't it? It was, Lou, but it was right in line with their pro-abortion policy. And this is just one more reason. Several weeks ago to our congregation, I said uh, the Biden administration is the ungodliest administration in the history of the United States. If you don't have to go to a hospital, you don't realize perhaps exactly what you're doing. You think you're killing your child in private, but there is no killing of a child in private, even if no one else sees it. God sees it. And this pill does nothing. It's not removing a biological blob from a woman. It's removing a life created by God. And this is pure evil. There's no other way to categorize it. This, that this got this far and that suddenly the FDA, which is uh, certainly to be protective of life as its primary mission, uh, is suddenly involved in abortion in a way that I think is, it's frankly, it's, it's, it's backhanded. It's being done in the darkness of the corridors of Congress and, and the Senate. The, the people we elected aren't making these decisions. This is a unilateral fiat coming from the president of the United States. Absolutely, Lou. And it just shows how Joe Biden and his ungodly policies have infiltrated and corrupted every agency of government, including the FDA. But I want to give some good news here amidst all of this. I really do think that the Supreme Court is on the precipice of sh uh, sharply curbing, if not completely overturning Roe v. Wade. And I think that will have a dramatic effect even on this decision. And your optimism is based on the arguments in the uh, in the Dobbs case, in which uh, no relation, by the way, I should point out <laughs> uh, the Dobbs case, in, in which uh, you expressed early on uh, the thought uh, and the hope uh, that it would be an even stronger uh, initiative than the Texas uh, the Texas law. Right. I think the Dobbs uh, case is a stronger case because it isn't, in, so to speak, tainted by this enforcement procedure that even some conservatives have questions about whether you want to empower private citizens to go after other citizens. You saw Gavin Newsom saying they're going to use that same tactic to go after gun owners. So I think the tactic of enforcement is questionable in the Texas case, but I appreciate Governor Abbott trying to protect life. I think the Dobbs case is a stronger case and more likely one that's to be a win for the pro-life group. Now, I would love to be able to say, Pastor, you and I agree on so much, but I, I am so leery of this Supreme Court, yes. this Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice. Uh, I, am, I just can't find that uh, uh, confidence that you express because 
uh, frankly, uh, John Roberts uh, is a, a liberal pretending to be a, a conservative, at least during his confirmation. We have seen what he is, and what he is is a sneak thief. <laughs> well, in my vote counting, I'm not counting on John Roberts. But I think, again, because of what President Trump has done and appointing these three solidly conservative pro-life justices, I'm optimistic that there's going to be some curbing of abortion, uh, if not an overwrite, uh, outright overturn of Roe v. Wade. And I mean, in the past, the Supreme Court has never had the courage to lead public opinion. They put their collective fingers in the air and see which way the wind is blowing. But maybe this time it will be different. Well, let's hope so, because it's awful to think of the lives that have been taken in the name of uh, uh, choice uh, since uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, it's, I wonder how we will look back, how historians will look back on this period uh, in American history. It, it is truly a terrible thing to contemplate. Uh, let, let's turn to, uh, right now, also a, a fascinating study that just came out from the Pew Research Center Three in 10 U.S. adults are now religiously unaffiliated, and the number of self-identified Christians has fallen significantly from just a decade ago. Uh, what do you think is transpiring? Lou, I think there are a number of factors at play here. Certainly, the secularization of our country, the false idea you can be good without God, the failure of parents to pass along their faith to their children. But I don't think we ought to underestimate the role that two years of isolation and separation from churches during this pandemic has uh, caused the American people. Christianity is something that's best practiced in the company of others. And I think this isolation we've gone through has really uh, played a negative role in the spiritual health of Americans. Well, the spiritual health of Americans, it's, it is, it, there has been so much uh, exploitation of the crisis that is and was COVID. And now here we go again with the left looking to every possibility, this administration looking to every opportunity to, to exert what is simply leftist authoritarianism, wanting to shut down uh, all gatherings, uh, to demand vaccinations uh, as a right of the state rather than a matter of choice, of course. Uh, for for families and for their uh, for children in school, uh, it, it's very difficult to rationalize what is happening because of the fact that we have a left wing president in office rather than say a uh, a, a moderate like uh, uh, President Donald Trump, and I say that only with uh, partial tongue in cheek. <laughs> well, I think we saw exactly what the left's game plan was during the last shutdowns. I mean, if they were going to treat everyone equally, that would be one thing. But we saw the left in states like New York and California arguing for casinos being open and stores being open, but shutting down churches. And, you know, the fact is there is no constitutional right for a casino to be open, but there is something called the First Amendment that prohibits government from interfering with places of worship. So I have no confidence that if shutdowns begin, they're going to be equitably distributed. I think they're coming after churches like they always do. 
and coming after churches and all of us, uh, apparently, is a, a variant that is even more transmissible, more contagious than Delta or the original so-called COVID-19 China virus. Uh, how concerned are you that this, this variant, uh, Omicron, will be even more destructive of rights and liberties and the rights of Americans to assemble uh, in, in their churches, synagogues, uh, and places of worship? Well, I'm afraid it could be used as a tool uh, to do just that. And look, Lou, we've been very clear, and you and I have been honest with each other. I mean, I believe that COVID was a real problem, and we lost real uh, church members uh, who died because of COVID. I've uh, encouraged people to be vaccinated. I'm vaccinated and so forth. But I do think it can be used as a tool of control by government, and we've already seen it happen. I wish everybody would get vaccinated, would choose to get vaccinated so that we could move past this thing and not give the government a false excuse to limit our freedom. Yeah, I, I would just hope that every American would respect the right of uh, their fellow citizens to make their choices and that government, instead of mandating and telling people what to do as if they were uh, cattle rather than citizens, uh, would uh, educate all Americans, uh, try to persuade uh, on policy rather than demand as an authoritarian government would. Uh, and then I agree with you. Uh, I, you know, we're, my wife and I are vaccinated. We are, uh, we're boosterized, you know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it's every citizen's right. And I really think that has to be, we can't rationalize when we have rights and when we don't. Uh, and I think it's just such a, if you will, that old cliche, such a slippery, slippery slope of which there are so many in modern, modern uh, American life. Let, let's turn to, uh, if we may, you, uh, your event with uh, President Trump uh, and having uh, the former president of the United States uh, in your congregation, in your church, uh, your emotions, your thoughts. Well, we were so honored that President Trump chose to come and worship with us on what we call uh, Christmas Sunday, this past Sunday, which the whole theme is Christmas. My message was about Christmas. And, uh, you know, the President Trump's love for Christmas and understanding of the importance of it uh, is well known uh, among people. And, uh, you know, during his tenure in office, uh, he invited me two or three times at the White House Christmas parties to come up and share about the real meaning of Christmas and to lead in prayer. And I thought since he was visiting our house of worship, I would invite him to do the same at the end of the service. And so we were glad to have him offer a Christmas greeting. And your sermon on what this world would look like were there no Christmas. Uh, that's a provocative uh, premise. Uh, and it's also one that, that causes uh, everyone who is religious to, to pause and think, you know, the, of the foundation of Christianity, its true meaning. Give us what you think uh, is the importance of the, of the, of the hypothetical. Well, if there were no Christmas, just think about it, we'd have to throw out our calendars to begin with. I mean, we're about to enter 2022. Well, 
2022 years from what? Well, it's all centered around the birth of Christ. I mean, would you would lose great works of architecture like Notre Dame or great works of art like the Sistine Chapel. There'd be no great music from Bach or Beethoven who were Christians. Uh, we would have these great educational institutions like Harvard, Yale, and Brown that were originally founded as Christian schools. There'd be no uh, great benevolent organizations like the Red Cross or the Salvation Army that were Christian organizations in the name of Christ. If there were no Christmas, would be that there'd be no Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sin and conquered death for us so that we have hope beyond the grave. I mean, the thought of no Christmas is really appalling, but the good news is there is a Christmas, and that's what we gladly celebrate this coming week. Well, it's uh, it's it's a wonderful uh, uh, explanation, and uh, as I would expect, uh, and I thank you for being as uh, as a pastor, provocative and a great tutor as well, uh, Pastor. We appreciate you being with us, and thank you so much for uh, taking time. Well, thank you, Lou, and I hope you and your family have a merry Christmas. Thank you, and to your family as well, Pastor Robert Jeffress here on the Great America Show. And I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, happiest holidays, and Happy New Year. Thanks for being with us. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.